We can't say when this huge decision comes on our plate that we didn't expect and aren't ready for, we can't say, hold on, let me cultivate my character real quick so I can make this decision smartly. It's like, no, that's our work all along is to begin to develop these practices so that when we're on the spot and the moment of decision arrives, though we may not feel ready, um, in Christ, I believe we are ready. We are ready when that moment comes. You're listening to the Rule of Life podcast by Practicing the Way. In each season, we explore an ancient practice from the way of Jesus and its relevance for the modern era. This is season four, Solitude. Good morning, Brian. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing so well. Such a woke up, just excited to be with you both and to be on this call. For those listening, we are exploring this season um, of the Rule of Life podcast. We're exploring the practice of solitude, but it's really more of um, a simplified way of talking about three cores of what we mean by solitude, which is solitude, silence, and stillness, which um, as we talked about in one of our previous episodes, stillness is almost the, the thing that emerges when there's a rhythm of solitude and silence. It's the byproduct or posture. And today we get to continue that conversation uh, around solitude and around the need for that space in the soul for there to be deep encounter and growth towards the likeness of Christ by having a conversation. The Solitude Practice is a four-week experience designed to be run in your church, small group, or community. It combines teaching, conversation, and spiritual exercises to introduce you to this ancient discipline for life with God. If you come on the Solitude Practice, you will not just learn about solitude, you will learn how to practice solitude. The end goal is to integrate solitude more richly into your rule of life so that you can arrange your life around God. The solitude practice is completely free, thanks to the generosity of our friends in the circle. Available now at practicingtheway.org. Today we have Emily Freeman with us. Emily P. Freeman is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of five books, including The Next Right Thing, A Simple, Soulful Practice for Making Life Decisions. As a spiritual director, podcast host, and workshop leader, her most important work is to help create soul space and offer spiritual companionship and discernment for anyone struggling with decision fatigue, which I love that line. Her work has been featured in today's Parents, Christianity, Christianity Today, and Pathios. Emily holds a master's degree in spiritual formation and leadership from Friends University, where she also serves as a residency lecturer. She lives in North Carolina with her family. Find her work on her website, Instagram, and her substack, The Soul Minimalist, which John Mark and I have talked about. That is a killer name, The Soul mm-hmm. Minimalist. Well, hi, Emily. Welcome. It's so good to be with you. 
It is so good to be with y'all too. Thank you for having me. I love this topic. I love everything around silence, stillness, and solitude. And also it's kind of a love-hate relationship, right? It takes a lot of work to be still. So this should be a fascinating conversation. Emily, where do you fall on the, let's just get this out of the way. Where do you fall on the introvert, extrovert spectrum? I am more on the introvert side, um, but I feel like I can like play an extrovert on TV when needed. So, you know, like I, I, I'm when I, te- you know, when you test, I don't know how yeah. accurate are tests. Do we still do tests? Mm-hmm. But when I self-report, right, it's not like a surprise party. I mean, like we we answer the questions ourselves, but um, I tend to come out sort of right in the middle, but always mm-hmm. on the introvert side. Yes, just almost an ambivert. That's a thing, you know? That's a thing. Why, why don't we have that as one of our options? That's what the psychologist the other day, and he's like, oh, well, you know, introversion and extroversion doesn't hold up to scientific scrutiny. And my whole world was just rocked. I just felt <laughs> Everything like- Everything fell apart. <laughs> the floor fell out from beneath my feet. Who am I anymore? I don't even know who I am. <laughs> you know what was really helpful for me with that was just this simple reframing. It's not about energy, but about what's most real for you. Is it the outer world of relationships and connections or the inner world of ideas, passions, thinking, desires? That framed it in a different way and really helped me. Mm. I like well, that. Well, I mean, one of the things, Emily, we're beating up on is that, you know, solitude is not just like a therapeutic discipline for introverts to get some me time, but it's a, it's a spiritual discipline. You know, it's an essential part of our life with God. So this conversation, Emily, that we're about to have is the final conversation in our Solitude series. And we kind of uh, use this three-part schema of solitude, silence, and and stillness as an encounter based on, um, I'm guessing you have likely read Nouwen's Way of the Heart, but he has that lovely line, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. It is the place of encounter, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. And he goes on to call it the furnace of our transformation. Anybody that spent much time in solitude knows it is like a furnace. (laughs) It is like, you know, it's a crucible. I don't care what your personality structure is. And so we've kind of used this three-part frame of three encounters that we often experience in solitude. First, an encounter just with ourselves, which just meaning like, in particular, our inner and kind of emotional life and this dynamic where a lot of the stuff, that a lot of the feelings that are the less than pleasant ones that we push down in the pace and busyness and distraction of life come up in solitude and you find yourself just feeling all sorts of things. And uh, then we covered an encounter with um, our enemies and, you know, the Desert Fathers and Mothers entire paradigm of solitude not as like a place of rest their paradigm was not sabbath rest it was like spiritual war it was jesus in matthew 4 you go out into the desert to fight the evil one and to face evil within and without and then the last kind of dimension that we want to key in with on you is an encounter with god which i think is the most intuitive and of course these all overlap with each other they are not separate anywhere else other than in a podcast intro Um, But we'd love to just kind of explore this last dimension with you. I'm so grateful for your thinking, Emily. Love your writing. You're a brilliant writer. And we just thought it would be really fun to hear some of what God has done in your inner life about solitude. 
Yeah, so you've been through the program at Friends University that Richard Foster started, and now you teach for it. Um, but what drew you initially to spiritual formation? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, um, so Foster started Renovare at Friends University um, in Wichita, Kansas. There's a little room. John Mark and I actually visited that room together mm-hmm. uh, where Renovare started. Um, and some of the early members of Renovare included Dallas Willard and James Bryan Smith. And so James Bryan Smith goes by Jim. He actually started the master's program at Friends. Um, and it's I think maybe it was back in 2016, oh, 2015. I don't know if I have the dates right. It's not been that long. Um, but he brought on Keith Kiesler, who's the program director mm-hmm. and runs that program and shapes it. Um, but I found it though, because I was actually looking for, I wasn't even looking for a spiritual formation program. I was interested in spiritual direction. Um, and I started meeting with a spiritual director. It's been about a decade now. And that's where I really first learned the value of held silence in the presence Mm. of someone else for the purpose of discerning the movement of God in my life and in the world around me. And you know, as oftentimes things are, things that we experience ourselves, then we begin to get curious and think, maybe that's something I would actually like to practice on the other side of the room, like as an actual spiritual director. So I was looking for uh, programs or training for that. And that's when I found the program at Friends, the Masters in Spiritual Formation and Leadership, and ended up doing that. And um, somehow I never left. I'm still there. I go <laughs> twice a year out there. And um what a great community of humans out there in Wichita, in the middle of Kansas, um, who are just practicing a beautifully generous orthodoxy with people from all different um, Christian denominations, different walks and streams of faith, but all with um, holding a high Christology of, you know, the Trinitarian theology and walking with Jesus um, into mm-hmm. the next ordinary moment. And so it's been a real gift that I get to just do that. I just go for the for the residencies. So for those first year grad students, I get to spend time with them. And one of my self-appointed jobs that no one gave me, but I gave to myself, <laughs> is uh, my work is to get the students in the room. Um, we all are traveling from all over and you know all the different hurried ways we live life. And once we arrive together, part of my goal secretly is to pay attention to how we're walking into the room. And then how can we have maybe not the same experience, but a shared experience here for this week-long residency. So that's a little bit about my experience there. Um, wonderful program, wonderful people. But the draw was the spiritual direction. What um, what drew you to enter spiritual direction a decade ago or whatever you said it was? It was a lot of the opposite of what we're talking about today. I was, um, let's see, so it was about a decade ago. I was about a maybe six or seven years into the world of writing, speaking, traveling, sort of doing that thing, trying it on, wondering um, how much of my my schedule do I want to give to mm-hmm. this? How do I do this in a way that is, you know, that I'm rooted at home, but not, but, but also still doing this work mm-hmm. that I found really meaningful. You have three kids, is that right? Or yeah, two? we have three. Three, um, yeah. Teenagers, right? The the two oldest are twins and they're okay. second year college students now. Oh, wow. wow. And so our, our youngest is a junior in high school. Wow. Um, but okay. as you can imagine, 10 years ago, you yes. know, math is hard, yeah. but we can do it sort of. I in can our heads and know imagine. That it was full. It was a full life. Um, and I remember talking with a friend of mine. Actually, I was at a Renovare. Um, I was co-leading a Renovare retreat for 
for their leaders. You know, they didn't want to lead it for themselves. So they, they roped in Nathan Foster and me and my friend Phil Anderson to lead their retreat. And I was talking with Phil, who's, you know, a mentor of mine. And I was like, I'm kind of drowning, I think, actually. How do I, how can I continue this for the long haul? Or can I? Is there a such thing? You know, how do you do this without um, just being completely overwhelmed with the scheduling and the traveling and all the things? And Phil also happens to live in my hometown. And he told me, you know, maybe you could benefit from meeting with a spiritual director. And he literally gave me the name of his spiritual director. Hmm. And I've been meeting with her ever since. Um, wow. And there wasn't anything magical about her. She's wonderful. Um, and it just so happened that he was from my hometown. But we, you know, have spent many, many years in the in the sunroom uh, of her of her condo and sit and look out at the lake. Um, and I remember the very first time I went to see her, she started the session, introduced it and said, you know, we're going to start with some silence. And already I'm freaking out, right? Because <laughs> I don't know. How do you do that I'm with someone else I'm a speaker. I don't room? do silence. You know, <laughs> we yeah. say things. We don't not say things. <laughs> yeah. And she, she invited me right off the bat. Was like, I, she said, we'll hold some silence. And then when you're ready, you say amen. And my heart starts pounding because I'm like, you know, so we, so we get quiet and I'm thinking, well, ha- well, if you wait too long, then you're like trying too hard. But if you say amen too quickly, then like, are you spiritual? <laughs> you're not so trying hard enough. enough. Trying to figure it out. <laughs> right. Like, how do we? And it was, I mean, it was probably a year. Spiritual director mind games. Yeah. It was. She was, yeah, she was like trying to read me. Anyway, she wasn't. But that's, you know, how you're so yes. self-aware. We're so, so used to constant noise. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Constant noise. Yes. And constant uh, measurement yeah. and uh, and being observed. Yeah. And we assume that's what's always happening around yeah. us. Like there surely she's just, she can't be indifferent. Yes. She must be judging me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, Sizing and so me up. Yeah. Figuring me out. So really that was what I was, you know, doing for my, to myself. But it's been 10 years and I'm happy to say I no longer uh, worry about her wondering how long I hold the silence or don't hold the silence. Um, but that has, that's sort of got me into sort of this world of formation. Um, spiritual direction was sort of my, my gateway was drug, the entry, if you will. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that sounds like the gateway need was just the hurry, the busyness, the unsustainable pace of your life, you know, yeah. which I'm sure a couple of people could relate to. And then what was your journey <laughs> like into the practice of silence and solitude beyond the kind of beginning of spiritual direction conversation moments um you know i know that's a part of your life overall did was it already there did you grow up in a church tradition where that was at premium or is that something newer to you what was your what were your first forays into solitude like i think the two mentors I think of um, are ones that are accessible to everyone. One is Ruth Haley Barton in her book, Invitation to Solitude and yeah, Silence. It's just the such best. a great it's resource. The best, yeah. um, and also Parker Palmer in the Quaker tradition. Um, his work, uh, the, the tiny book, one of my favorites is Let Your Life Speak. Yeah. Yes, I read that uh, all the time. I love and it. He, he, it's such a great reread and it's so small and easy. We like those. Um, but his his image or grounding metaphor, if you will, of the soul is like a wild animal. Mm-hmm. And if you want in the to woods. Yeah. encounter a wild animal, you don't go crashing in the yes. woods and shouting for it to come out, but you sit for an hour or two at the base of a tree and you wait silently. And that idea, um, while sounds really beautiful, is 
really um, maddening <laughs> to sit at the base of a tree <laughs> waiting for your soul to come out. Especially um, if you don't I'll have your say, iPhone on you, you know? Especially if not that, right? So so I think, though, that Parker Palmer's work and then, and then Ruth Haley Barton's work both um, were really helpful for me, especially in those early days of practicing this on my own and, and figuring out um, not just not just kind of how to do it, I'll put that in quotes, but also the value of it. And yeah, I was just yeah. deeply drawn to their descriptions of um, both their life without it, because I think Ruth especially does a really good job of sort of laying out her mm-hmm. life prior to yes, this, yes. this regular practice. And I resonated with that. And so that was deeply compelling to me. Um, and also, of course, you know, her really clear kind of laying out of what that looks like. Her book is our recommended reading for this practice. So for those of you listening, Invitation to Silence and Solitude, it is, you know, it is just kind of the best, I think, one-stop shopping. And it has a lot of practices um, chapter by chapter to kind of walk you into it. Emily, what, what have you found to be, not the value, because there's more than one, but what what have you found valuable about spending time in the quiet with God? You mentioned Henry Nowen, and we read an, I don't know if it was an article or if it was a an excerpt of, of a chapter, you've probably read it, about um, from solitude to community to ministry. Oh, yeah. The yep. three movements of Jesus. Yep. Yes. The three movements, right? He, he was always kind of going back and forth between solitude, community, ministry. Yeah. And the order of it, mm-hmm. of, of sol- yeah. we often do the backwards, like we're <laughs> trying to do ministry. And then if we can't do it on our own, we try to wrangle other people to help us. And if we're really mm-hmm. desperate, we might pray and get alone with God. <laughs> but this idea of flipping it backwards, and it's actually solitude first, you know, this morning, afternoon, evening. Yes. Um, and, and by the way, you know, I, I think a lot of us maybe grew up in traditions where we called that quiet time. Um, and uh, like sort of like this alone time with God, and and I guess maybe there was a value to that at a certain time in my life. But now I just see this great gift of uh, starting off in solitude with God, um, going back to that the words of Henry Now, and he talked about how community is not loneliness grabbing onto loneliness. Like I'm so lonely, you're so lonely, let's get together. But it's solitude grabbing onto solitude. I'm the beloved, you're the beloved, together we build a home. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of being two solitudes coming together in Mm -hmm. community. That's the real key quote. here is where we can build a home. Um, Is is, uh, deeply compelling to me. And it only comes when when I when I maybe sit long enough, and now one talks about this too, with the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. Sitting with that long enough to where it doesn't it doesn't sound false, that it actually begins to sound true, uh, because we know we don't have everything we need, right? Yeah. But, but sitting with God long enough to where that begins to feel like it could be possible, and then going out into the world, that's that's compelling to me, and I think that's what uh, that's where I learn. Oh, I am the beloved, and I can show up in the beloved presence of others. But you're saying you have you have to start with that before yeah. you enter. I'm thinking right now of that Bonhoeffer quote: uh, "Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone." You know. What I love about your even your invitation as two solitudes coming together to be community is, um, and I don't know if I've heard it this way you talking about your first experience with spiritual direction 
and I love the term you use, a held silence that drew you to it, um, that it was actually someone else who taught you in solitude how to step into it. I think there's something really powerful about that. I'd love to hear you speak to that because I think a lot of people read about it and then go try it, but you had an invitation by someone in their very presence to feel this held silence that then Hmm. became solitude for you. And that I think is a a doorway in that I haven't thought of deeply enough. And I wanna hear you say more about that. Yeah, that's a fascinating observation, Brian. I thank you for bringing that out. It's it's a form of apprenticeship yes. in a way. Wow. And it's also deeply vulnerable. Like I would much rather do it by myself. Yes. <laughs> I wish I could learn that by myself, yes. right? Because yes. then I'm like, I can get it, I can get the messy, embarrassing part out. Um, but and I always in my mind, and even to this day, a decade later, in my mind, I'm like, I look forward to going to spiritual direction and, and sitting with my spiritual director. And then like an hour before this is the worst idea ever. Why am I allowing myself to subject myself to holding, being held in silence in the presence of someone else wow. on my own behalf for the purpose of hearing God? No, thank you. It, it, there's just such a deep resistance in me, even though like that's literally my job. I'm literally a spiritual director for other people now. And still that resistance is strong. And mm. so, you know, I think about, um, but I do think about the, the kind presence of encountering Christ in an embodied person mm. in the room, there's a there. It's almost like it speeds up the process of learning because it's embodied, rather than not to say you couldn't learn this maybe alone. But I, I do feel like that there's something to that apprenticing yourself to someone else in ways that just it just can't happen in a room by yourself. Which is funny because we're talking about solitude. <laughs> yeah, but I mean apprenticeship you you train, you know what I mean? It's, it's baby steps. Um, it's training wheels, it's beginnings, you know? Well, I was just going to say, there's something to, there's something to that, what you just said that we allow ourselves to do in other aspects of our life. Like, you know, there's parts of my relationship with my wife, Jenny, that learning to be loved and love her and having this, this, just this growing capacity to receive her kind affirmation and love for me that has given me a whole new picture of an experience of God's love. And I think what you're saying is your spiritual director gave that same, she created not just the expectation, but she modeled it, as you said, as an apprentice, but you had to almost experience that in the solitude of another before it could be real for you, before you, the commentary that you make or whatever, um, it sounds like that was your first encounter. Was that kind of chaotic commentary that we all feel when we first get still? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Chaotic com. That feels true. Yeah, that feels very true. <laughs> I yes. feel that all the time. Set all people everywhere for all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember uh, the first time I ever heard a spiritual director use that that lingo of hold silence, and I was like, hold, hold, hold silence. But it's interesting, like to think of solitude not as a absence, but as a presence. Like there's yes. something there you hold on to. Mm-hmm. And um, most people, I just think of it as negative space. But yeah. really there there's a presence there, um, ultimately, you know, the presence of God. What's the connection between solitude and learning to discern and hear God's voice and discern his presence and, you know, what he's doing in our heart? What's mm. what's that connection? Like why I would imagine that we, the three of us, all believe that you need time in solitude in order to 
really hear God's voice. Why, why is that? What's that connection? Why, you know, especially for people that are so relationally wired in such a relational matrix of spirituality that is the, the Jesus way, why do we need solitude? Or, or what's the connection between solitude and silence and learning to hear God's voice? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why we want to hear God's voice. And one we sort of spoke to already is knowing that we are the beloved. I think there's also a practical piece to a lot of us wanting to hear God's voice. It's because we want to know what we ought to do yes, and (laughs) what next move to make. And I do a lot of work with discernment and people are, um, you know, can get uh, can get very black and whitey about uh, their their next right thing <laughs> about their decision making when when God comes into the picture, yeah. and so I think that uh, discernment work requires solitude um, and community. We can ask our Quaker yes. friends the importance of clearness and community, um, but I think that there is a piece that often we get squirmy about, and that is the idea of desire and uh, we get really afraid of our own desire and so when we're not in solitude or in stillness or in conversation with god on some level desire can feel really scary because desire can mislead us yes also avoiding our desire can mislead us what we want Mm. is what we want whether or not we're willing to admit it yes and whether it's good or not it's Whether still it's good there, or not, driving it's, it's our there. behavior. Yeah. It drives our behavior. And I think what solitude in God's presence can do for us is it can help, help us clear the clutter. I talk about um, I talk about being a soul minimalist. I love that. And, yeah, best, so best good. title. Well, I, and what that is, to me, you know, solitude, it's, it is a not doing, but it's also quite active. And I think people avoid it because they think not doing should be easy, and then they try to do it, and it's really hard. And yes. but it takes energy to hold that space. It, it's like you're holding back a negative space, and nature nature loves a vacuum or doesn't love a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It, we want to fill it, right? We always want to yes. fill it. Yeah. And, I, and I think this idea that we're always receiving input, physical, mental, emotional input is always coming in. The question is, where is the output? So regular minimalism are for a physical spaces. The output is we declutter, we have spring cleaning with yeah. the whole family pitches in for 10 minutes. You do the thing. What about for our inner life? So practicing soul minimalism is decluttering on the inside. It's uh, decluttering is to my outer life as silence, stillness, and solitude is to my inner life. And wow. so in the same way, a minimalist might ask, what am I holding on to that I no longer need? A soul minimalist says, what has a hold on me? And so this idea of releasing what has a hold on me, really, in my experience, the only way it can happen is in silence, solitude, and stillness. And Mm. so in that space, when we get there, um, this idea of desire, I think, comes back around. And when, when we're not practicing this as part of our regular, beautiful rhythm of life, this idea of solitude with God, then what happens is those desires, they will inform our behavior. And they will come out one way or the other, but they're going to come out in the form of frustration, being snippy, uh, being angry, not sleeping, Mm -hmm. anxiety, panic attacks, you know, the whole gamut. And not saying there may not be other reasons for those things, but I think sometimes our squelched desire that we're not aware of is just going to come out sideways. And so I think we get confused because we hear desire and our knee-jerk reaction just think that's bad. But there's a difference between demanding what you want and admitting 
what you want. One is mm. a form of aggression. Ooh, that's a great distinction. And one can be a beautiful confession. One wow. feels like yeah. a closed fist and the other is an open hand. And and I think doing that in God's presence, you just the fist opens up because that's what Jesus yeah. invites, right? The presence of Jesus is kind and open and is going to invite us to open that up. And that's what I think solitude can begin to do for us is to begin that process of of internal decluttering and of confessing our desire, whether we get what we want or not. But being mm. able to name it in God's presence is a gift, not just for me, but for my community around me, because then my stuff's not coming out sideways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, there's such like a, a bipolarity, huh? Like I felt in the church tradition I grew up in, desire was basically bad. You know, right. so yeah. people would love to quote the Jeremiah, the heart is desperately wicked, and they which is very Jeremiah. true. But yeah. they don't keep quoting Jeremiah yeah. where he also says, you know, in the new covenant, I'll write my law on your hearts. Same word. Listen. You know? Yes. And, um, yeah. and so, but it was just, you know, desire bad was kind of the message I imbibed. But I think part of that is a reaction to the, then the wider outside the church, the wider secular culture, at least, you know, us on the West Coast that I've grown up in my whole life is basically desire is God. I mean, like, if you'd want it, you deserve it, you need it, you can't be happy without it. And so this kind of like whiplash of suppress your desire or bow down to your desire. And of course, human desire is so much more complex than that. Many of our desires in my experience are contradictory. You know, yeah. I want <laughs> I want to lose 20 pounds and I want to eat pizza every single night. And those, those are both genuine, authentic self desires, you know? So um, I've, I, I, you know, when I remember when I first discovered Ignatian spirituality and realized, oh, wow, there's this incredibly sophisticated Christian tradition around, you know, you use the word discernment. Um, could you talk to us about that? First off, I would love just to hear your definition of discernment. And then how do you sift when you go into solitude? Sometimes it's really clear, like I have this desire and it's bad. Sometimes it's really clear I have this desire and it's good. A lot of the time it's like, I have these desires and I don't know what to do with them. You know, I don't even know what God thinks about them. Um, like what's, how do you sift through? So desires come up, they come up in God's loving presence. I hear you on that. How do you sift, sift through them in solitude? Well, I think when you, you know, you're talking about discernment and I think there is a difference between decisions and discernment, decision-making mm. oftentimes is, you know, you have a decision to make and you're looking for uh, an answer. Yeah. And my simplest definition or concept for discernment is in discernment, we're looking for arrows. That mm. it's usually, we don't go into a discernment process and come out with an answer always, sometimes maybe, um, but often it's just sort of a next right thing practice. It's a posture of paying attention. And I would also submit what, um, uh, several poets before me, I'm not a poet, but several have talked about this idea of how uh, the path is not in front of us, but is behind us. Mm -hmm. And this idea that we're looking for the future to see what ought we to do in discernment and what's ahead and what's my next thing and what decision should I make and what does God want me to do? And I think oftentimes the invitation is to look behind us in reflection and having a practice of reflection in solitude and discerning and considering well, what have I done before? I mean, our greatest teacher, our greatest teacher of future decisions is the decisions we've already made. Wow. Um, and I think looking back and having that practice of knowing, okay, what was life giving? What was, what was life draining? Um, what are ways in which God showed up then 
um, could be an indicator of how God might be showing up now. Mm. And instead of uh, always thinking there's a new thing, yeah, there may be a, a new thing, but I bet there was a hint of the last of the new thing in my last thing as well. And so paying attention wow. to, I mean, reflection has been for me, which in some ways it seems counterintuitive, but I think for me in solitude um, and in God's presence, not just naming those desires, but also seeing ways in which, you know, even the daily examine is just a, it's a daily version of that. Yes. But I think also having a, a, a bigger, a broader daily examine, maybe a weekly examine or a monthly examine of looking back yes. and, and seeing, um, how's God been moving in my life and how have I participated? Because we, we so often think it's, it's what I want and it's me and then it's what God wants and it's God. And you know the work of the Holy Spirit and the presence of of Jesus in my life is that you can't you can't mm. really separate them. Yes, and I think that's the myth is that we think I'm over here and God's over there and I got to figure out how to get over there. But Jesus closed that gap already, and there's mm. a there's a union with God that is a mystery yeah. that is such a deep relief for me when I really get quiet and consider it. And so that's what the work is. It's not discerning. Well, what does God want? What do I want? Always, although it feels that way sometimes. But I think sometimes it's recognizing what do I de- what is my next deeply right thing, and how can I trust that God is intuitive enough and big enough and loving enough to let me know if I'm on the wrong track. Hi, my name is Julianne. My husband and our two kids and I live in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Listening and noticing are the two main things I try and do during this time of solitude. Try and listen to see what God is bringing into my thoughts or my feelings, my heart. And then also just notice without judging, without trying to understand even, but just notice what's coming up. And so I try and sit in that quiet for a while. And then from there, I just really try and let the Spirit guide me. And so maybe that's reading scripture. Um, often that's journaling and things coming up that I, I didn't realize were there. Solitude allows for the things that have been overlooked or pushed away, or even just that I didn't have time to address or notice before. Um, it allows for those things to be um, noticed now and to be listened to. And so sometimes that's sadness or grief. Sometimes it's even joy or gratitude, um, but just the things that I've not had time to sit with that I, I do need to sit with and um, spend some time processing. And so I'll journal and often it's greater clarity of God's hand in things or greater understanding or processing of grief and loss or just meeting the feelings that come up with truth and with the presence of God and a reuniting with the Holy Spirit um, in doing things as a mom or homeschooling or my job, I often get disconnected from the Holy Spirit in what He wants to speak to me. And so solitude is a way to reconnect in that. I love how, I mean, that's so, it's poetic. You said you're not a poet, but that's a very poetic way of articulating it, Emily. And um, I love just even that concept that grounds your book and your podcast, The Next Right Thing. It's such a practical, um, almost oppositional force to the the perfect, the thing that we want in the biggest possible scope. Yeah. I want to have the biggest ideals and go after the biggest thing and my side hustle will get you there. And and it's always building bigger and bigger. And you're, you're, the simplicity to be content with the next right thing as really a practice of soul minimalism, I think is just, it's a doorway that helps cut out the noise yeah. that 
gets people ex- excuse themselves. They excuse themselves by saying, oh, I don't know where to go, so I'm just going to sit here stalled. <laughs> and I think that invitation that you're making is how key, um, and I'd love to hear about your own journey, even if you would share how that process is, has gone for you in these 10 years um, of moving from hustle movement got to get the big picture down to what is the next right thing and just naming it and doing it as a practice as micro habit whatever you want to call it yeah well let me tell you what it's it's still not easy (laughs) i think it comes a little more naturally but um but it's definitely something i i i have to contend with the motor in my chest every single day that that it's it wants to rev up every day. And I don't know if it's just hum- being human. I don't know. I mean, I've never been anyone else. So I, to me, it's normal. <laughs> but or if it's just the nature of my own personality, or, or what it is. And I'm someone listen, who has a lot of privilege in the world. Like I, you know, I, I can take time off if I need to, and I can rest if I need to. But I often choose not to. <laughs> um, I really like to work. And there's things that I, I just like having my hands in. And so this idea of, um, intentionally slowing and not considering what's the next big thing, but what's my next right thing can be both a relief and an insult depending on the day. Um, Because sometimes it's like, I don't want to do the next little thing. I want to do the next big thing. I want to have big impact or impact that I can see or measure. Um, But, but I will say, you know, I have seen in myself um, over time more of a contentment with and and where the relief is with that next right thing and i'll tell you one place it comes out a lot is in parenting um because as much as we you know i think i can see i can see the whole midlife thing that people (laughs) talk about of like you know you can kind of you have a hand in influencing things at work right so that's why people you know my age maybe like to go that way because the things at home it's like you can't they're really control the people, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're yeah. going to do the things and it's going to, it's, it's hard to know what's coming. And so next right thing, posture and practice is so vital with, you know, when you're, when you're in relationship with other humans who you're both like sort of responsible for, but kind of not, um, with the age of my kids. And so I have found that to be a gift there, but it's a daily practice. It's such a daily practice. And, um, Iris Murdoch says that at the moment of decision, most of the work of decision-making has already happened. So that's why I think this idea of the practices and of the, um, soul, soul work and, and spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices are so important because we can't say when this huge decision comes on our plate that we didn't expect and aren't ready for, we can't say, hold on, let me cultivate my character real quick so I can make yeah. this decision <laughs> smartly. It's like, no, we, that's our work all along is to begin to develop these practices so that when we're on the spot and the moment of decision arrives, though we may not feel ready, um, in Christ, I believe we are ready. We are ready in, when that moment comes. It's hard though, huh, Emily, to, uh, full disclosure, I read your uh, Next Right Thing book in June, I think, on my summer vacation, because we were in the middle of like a major decision as a family. And uh, I had that phrase, actually before I read your book, come to mind multiple times, do the next right thing. And we kind of had this sense of what we felt was the next step, but it was a really big step with no like, it was like a one step. There was no two, three, four, five. You know, it was like <laughs> it was like a real next right. Yes, thing. it was like a real yeah. next right thing. But it was like, but then what? You know, it wasn't a step to the destination. It was like the next step in the journey. And I am like 
obsessive compulsive long range planner to a to a fault and so i've just been so stripped of that uh in the last couple of years through some stuff in my personal life and so now it's like i i i attempt to do it doesn't always work out but i attempt to do one day a month in solitude and so i just did my day last week and it's like it had been whatever that is eight weeks or whatever since i'd gone on this retreat and done all this journaling and i read your book and i was deeply moved by it and i felt like the word for the year was just do the next right thing and i felt like i knew what the next <laughs> right thing was and then here i am like six weeks into it we we moved we did the thing we moved to la and i was like already freaking out like but what am i doing with my life and why am i here and what does god have for me and i don't know what to do next and you know it's like i come back and reread my journals i just started i got up early one morning and i just i try not to read books when i'm in solitude but i will sometimes read my journals for reflection so i just in my current journal i started at you know page 1 which i think was february of this year and just read all the way through and i was shocked at how much i'd forgotten how, how much that God had spoken to me over the last, wow. whatever that is, six, seven months that I had completely forgotten. But I just yeah. was struck by how hard it is to just live in that simple posture of, okay, God, here's the next step. I will follow you in trust and obedience and then wait. It's so hard to live that way. Yeah, it's really hard to live that way. And I think about how Jesus told the family of the young girl, Jairus's daughter, and he, you know, she was basically dead. And then he woke her up. And it's like he had the whole room's attention in this moment. And I feel like he could have said, here's the five-year plan for her life. Here's the secret of the universe. I mean, he could have said anything. And all he said was, give her something to eat. Yeah. Like it's time for lunch. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's a wasted moment. I still think it was a wasted moment. But like the <laughs> deep inefficiency of Jesus in that like just the mm. next, it was a next right thing thing. And so what you just described was both that as well as the practice, the beautiful practice of reflection that yes. the path in many ways was behind you. Um, isn't it funny how much we forget even yeah. the things we wrote down ourselves? <laughs> Spiritual amnesia, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, so much of this is about waiting, right, Emily? I mean, you use the Parker Palmer, go into the woods, sit for an hour or two, wait for the wild animals. That's waiting, and that requires a lot of patience. And I find, like, yeah. the discernment process, I wish it was like, you know, you go block out four hours, you go into solitude, you do this little Ignatian exercise, and pop, Bob's your uncle. You know what to do next. And sometimes it is that way, right? <laughs> um, but... Uh, sometimes I feel like there's these long seasons of just waiting on God for clarity. I mean, you have a chapter in your book, Don't Rush Clarity. And I, you can't rush clarity because it just, it comes when it comes. It's so out of your control. So yeah. you know, I, I, would, I would love to hear you riff on just waiting, the posture of waiting in the spiritual life, the role of waiting, any thoughts you have there? I think a lot about waiting. I think... A couple things come to mind. One is you talked about not rushing clarity, and and I think you know that can be a common phrase. I I heard it first from Marie Forleo, who is you know this marketing guru. She's not even talking about it in a spiritual sense, but she has two kind of contradictory phrases. One is clarity can't be rushed, yes, mm -hmm. and the other thing she says is uh, clarity comes through action. 
Hmm. which is like, okay, well, which is it, Marie? But I do think (laughs) she's right both times. And I think that there is, again, it supports that next right thing. Um, Action is we can't rush clarity. So therefore I'll do my next right thing um, because momentum is better than perfection in many ways. And so I think the same can be true Hmm. in our spiritual life. Um, But so much of that action happens under the umbrella of waiting. Um, My husband's grandmother was 104 when she died. And she, she loved the Lord and she talked about Jesus and all she talked about since I met her. I mean, I, I knew her 25 years before she died, but she was in her eighties, you know, when I met her. And even then she would talk about, um, how she just felt like she was, you know, waiting with God and what she was waiting for. You know, maybe we presume we know what she's waiting for, but I don't know that I could fill in the blanks, but she would even talk about some of her favorite verses of scripture were ones that say, wait upon the Lord, take heart, you know, and wait upon God. And she would talk about it over and over again. And I remember sharing some, a video of her on my Instagram once we visited her one summer. It was actually the summer, a couple summers before she died. And I shared just some words that she talked about waiting and her favorite scripture was about waiting. And she, you know, first thing she does in the morning is she turns the little light on. Everything was little in, in her life. She'd turn the little light on and she'd read that little verse about waiting on God. And she would kind of, you know, kind of squeeze her hands together and and think about, you know, God being with her and how she was waiting for God. And I remember sharing that on Instagram. And I think to this day, it was the most, I got the most responses from that video of just her simple faith. And I, and I've thought about like, why is that? And I think it's because she was like this embodied, once again, Mm. uh, we apprentice ourselves to our elders and she was in some ways an embodied uh, vision of, of what it looks like to wait upon the Lord when, you know, she Mm. had been a widow for gosh, by then, I don't know, 50 years um, and had raised four boys kind of on her own and uh, never remarried. And so there were a lot of things that she waited on and for and with God about, and I'm sure in secret that that we won't know. Um, But she comes to mind when I think about waiting and how um, clarity cannot be rushed. I imagine there's a lot of things that she was looking for clarity for um, and maybe found it, maybe didn't, I don't know. But I think the people, I guess my point to land the plane is just, on Instagram, the feedback was, I just, I think there's something powerful to see someone live so long and hold on to their faith. And um, she wasn't famous, you know, she didn't have a website. It was just, she's just living her life in faithfulness and teaching first grade and doing her thing all the way up until she died. And there was something really beautiful about that. But I think that embodied embodiment of waiting, that's something that comes to mind for me. Practicing the Way is a crowdfunded nonprofit made possible by The Circle, a group of people from all over the world who believe deeply in the work of spiritual formation and discipleship and give monthly to see formation integrated into the church at large. I'm Delaney from Alberta, Canada, and I'm a part of this community. I support Practicing the Way because the resources they've created have encouraged me to fall more in love with Jesus, and I believe that the work they're doing will lead to life transformation for people no matter where they are on their discipleship journey. To join myself and others in the circle, or to share a one-time gift, visit practicingtheway.org give.
Well, Emily, it's been such a gift to chat with you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your life and your heart, the inside. Thank you for saying yes to all the things, that, all the desires that the Spirit of Jesus has stirred in your heart. Um, I'm sure from much longer than a decade ago, but we're really grateful for you. Where can people find more of your work if they want to become a soul minimalist, if they want to follow that? Where would you point people? Yeah, you can pretty much find everything at my website, emilypfreeman.com. There's another author that's Emily Freeman, so sometimes people get us confused. That's why I go, you know, I have the P there. Um, so emilypfreeman.com is, is basically where everything lives. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll be back with a little bonus episode next week. We're doing a Q&R. So this is our last kind of conversation. But Brian and Bethany and myself will be back next week with a closeout Q&R. In the meantime, the peace of Christ be with you. <laughs>